Welcome to the Mike on Much Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gehrman. We're here with our friend and trusted producer, Max Gehrman. We also have our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. And joining us later in the episode, friend of the pod, second appearance, uh, documentary filmmaker extraordinaire, Brent Hodge. He has a new one out called Farmer Bro. Uh, we've all seen it. I, I could talk more about it. It's about Martin Shkreli, who's the Farmer Bro. You might recall he jacked the, the price of drugs very infamously and became quite a villain. This film covers all of that. Uh, we go deep on it with Brent later in the episode. It's a long, in-depth conversation, and I think you will enjoy it. We certainly enjoyed having it. But before we get to Brent, fellas, uh, this is already a long episode, so so we're gonna, we're gonna hit a topic, and then we're gonna go to Brent, and then we're gonna go to Shane's dessert. But the topic today is an article. I think we alluded to it in a past episode uh, in the New York Times magazine called "Who Is the Bad Art Friend?" Art often draws inspiration from life, but what happens when it's your life? Inside the curious case of Don Dorland versus Sonia Larson, and it's by Robert uh, Kolker. Um, this was published uh, early October, October 5th, and it's something that kind of became a um, uh, a very viral talking point or conversation piece on Twitter, and then it sort of infiltrated other parts of life. I've had conversations about this piece uh, since uh, Shaney, Maxie, you both read it. Uh, what were your thoughts? Should I give a breakdown? Do people need to yeah, know no, what this thing's about? I think you need to about? give some context. I think most people won't read a long-form thing, so I think you should just talk about it uh, and, and explain all the nuances, and then we can get into it because it's, it's a very fun thing to talk about. Okay, so I'm going to try and do this in the Coles Notes sort of version. But essentially, there was like this group of writers and sort of a community of writers uh, in the Massachusetts, like Boston area. Uh, and some of them are more successful than others. Others are sort of aspiring. They're not published. Some of them have been published. Some of them haven't. So you have different sort of levels of success within this little writer's community. Uh, this woman, Dawn Dorland, was on the lower end of that. I don't know if she'd been published uh, previously or anything like that, but she liked being a part of this community. Don donated a kidney, uh, uh, not to anyone in particular, but just for someone to use in the future. And then Don ended up creating sort of a private Facebook group with close friends, members of which were part of this sort of writing community in Boston. Uh, And she basically explained how she donated a kidney. Um, She thought it was a little curious because certain writers in this group didn't sort of congratulate her. They didn't really participate in the discourse. So on on one level, it's like, Don, sort of, did you donate the kidney for the likes and sort of the notoriety? And I think this is what happened is a lot of those sort of writers in the community that she felt were sort of her her brethren and her sisters in the community, they weren't really giving her what she wanted, which was, I guess... um, a little bit of sort of applaud for doing, and I must say such like an incredible and selfless thing, like donating a kidney is no small thing to sort of be snarky at or roll your eyes at it. It's, it's, it's an immense act of sort of generosity. Um, She wrote a letter sort of about her selfless act and she put it in this group. Cut to months later, Dawn hears from a a mutual friend that this other writer, Sonia Larson, uh, who's Asian American had written a story about a woman, a white woman donating a kidney, essentially, uh, so she could like feel better about herself. And then so Dawn thought, well, that's curious. And so she'd reached out to Sonia a couple times, like, hey, like you've never liked any of my posts. Like, what's up with that? Kind of doing feelers. 
from there, it sort of spirals. Uh, uh, Sonia Larson had written a story that was inspired by Don. And in fact, an early version of the story took Don's Facebook letter verbatim about why she donated the kidney. And she put it in this fictional story about like a, an affluent white woman who donates a kidney so that, you know, and wants to have a relationship with the person she donated the kidney for. But the woman that she donated the kidney to, uh, this character is uh, uh, Asian American, doesn't want to give her the satisfaction uh, of it. Um, so that's the crux of it. This ends up becoming a very litigious thing where Don is like, you've basically stolen my life story. I am also a writer. You fucked me over. You didn't include me. Sonia's case is, listen, you, I was inspired by your story and I wrote a piece of fiction. Uh, you can't, you don't own sort of, the, like I was inspired and this is what I wrote. This was the crux of the, the argument with the main sticking point being that Sonia had taken the exact Facebook letter. The other element that's kind of the snarky bit is I guess this goes to court and they release all these text messages uh, in Discovery. And then this is when Don Dorland, who's kind of this unpublished woman that's just happy to be part of the writing community, sees that there's like a group chat of all of these like uh, Boston area writers making fun of Don for donating the kidney and for the Facebook letter and for all this stuff. So not only has Don's life been sort of taken from her and Sonia's work. Oh, by the way, Sonia's work had been like praised. It had been like picked as like to be published as part of this like Boston writing thing. It was it was get it was picking up steam. The story. So Don, it was a pretty crushing sort of uh, a turn of events for Don. Sonia, on the other hand, who's this uh, um, sort of writer who also was trying to get published and become prominent and she'd had some success. This was a big break for her. This was like her year with this story sort of picking up steam. But after Dawn basically sued her for plagiarism, everything fell apart. And now both of them are the sort of the subject of this story. Guys, that was like a five minute explanation. Do you think that I summed up? What that the was very was impressive. No one's better than you, Mike, at, at doing that kind of thing. So, so good yeah, job. the only thing we might need to talk about or clarify is why you mentioned that she's Asian. And that's because of power dynamics, right? You're not just mentioning that to mention it. 100%. Yeah. So yeah, yeah a, bi- a big point of, of Sonia Larson's fictional story was because in some ways the, the short story was almost like is Sonia Larson putting herself as the protagonist and then is Don Larson as this sort of like white woman that wants to sort of be praised for donating? That's a big part of the dynamics of the story. And when you read the full article, that is part of it. That is why I did bring up that part. Thank you for saying that, Shaney. Guys, what were your thoughts when you read this? Shaney, you did the long piece. Maxie, you did the long piece. Uh, I, I, I'll open the floor. Whoever wants to take it first. Well, I was surprised that because when you pitched it to me, Mike, it seemed like it was going to be more wild of a story and I did like it, but being in the creative field, it just felt more commonplace. I feel like every other week I'm thinking someone has stolen a joke from me or, (laughs) you know, our group too, the way we're always accusing each other of something or a commercial idea, someone not giving you credit (laughs) for it. And like, I, I was having a beer with that guy and I gave him that idea. Now it's on his Vimeo and he credited everyone except for me or, (laughs) you know what I mean? It just, it just just didn't have that like jaw dropping element that I was expecting from it. Not that it wasn't a good story. It was just, to me, stuff I had seen a lot in my life, especially the person doing an altruistic act and wanting praise for it. We we know so many people like that in our lives who will do something and then make this big, long post about it, and then we'll all make fun of them behind their backs. You know what I mean? <laughs> so you're related to the group chat, the group chat element of this snarky. Oh, yeah. And just even the last episode where people talking about this family tree and the things I'm doing, it just it was very relatable in a way that <laughs> I, I felt like I have been on both ends of the spectrum in the story. Yeah. One of the reasons why I think the story is so good is that it's so relatable because you're totally right, Shane. We all have that friend 
who does something kind of altruistic and and like objectively good, but wants to t- celebrate himself or herself too much and take a lot of credit <laughs> for it. You know, and we also have, uh, you know, I was hanging out with, with a friend of ours down in L.A. who was talking about how uh, his TV show idea got ripped off by a friend who literally might have sold the TV show to another, per- like to a network, despite knowing that our friend was also pitching at the show. So it's like these are themes that you see and hear about all the time that are delicious to talk about in group chats or at a bar, you know, while, while you're catching up with friends. But you just don't see it uh you know, ever actually documented in this particular way with such like vivid detail. And then the other thing which is interesting is that just like the the race dynamic in it is is very interesting because like, you know, I think um now more than ever, you know, we're thinking about like the idea of like white saviors. That was a thing that I think in the last, you know, five, 10 years, people are, are more cognizant of in a good way where it's just like, how are white people becoming the center of the narrative in every single like incident or any single happening it you know it's the person of privilege that is you know wanting to have the spotlight um so that i think is also particularly timely um i guess my question for both of you is um i think the heart of the matter is that dorland feels like she's being made fun of she is being made fun of and she feels stupid probably and she feels probably hurt and it is a mean-spirited thing that that group chat was was doing and in, in talking about her in that particular way. If if the story that um, Sonia had written was a story of glory and generosity and made the kidney uh, donator t- to be this very altruistic, awesome person, do you think Dorland would have been pissed about it. I don't think she would have. I think if the story was sort of commemorating this act of generosity in a really positive way, Dorlin would have been like, hey, I'm so touched that you used my Facebook post and even used it verbatim to tell this story, the story of but generosity. If that was the case, Sonia also would have been very forthcoming to, to ask her. So it would <laughs> never been an issue. And she also didn't think her and Don were friends. So that came into it too. I think if I did something like this to Mike, it might be more egregious because Mike and I are so close. Whereas if I did this to you, Max, maybe it wouldn't. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, we're close friends. I, someone that I, I met years ago who I might talk to from time to time, it wouldn't be as bad. You know what I mean? And I think Don miscalculated her friendship with Sonia. Yeah, I uh, it's it's I, I weirdly find myself having empathy for both of them in the sense that of course, like we've all been there on yeah, both sides, like, I think. Like yeah, like like if I put myself in Sonia's position, I'm like okay, I think about her taking this sort of like this nugget of inspiration from this real life event, and she creates this fictional story that, by all accounts, and no one's read it. I I, I haven't read it. I don't know where that short story exists right now, but like by all accounts, it was an exceptional piece of work that like uh, whatever literary body of Massachusetts recognized and. And and so Sonia was getting her big break by truly, I guess, displaying a talent um, and an ability. It's like she wrote, like Maxie, it's like she wrote the greatest song of her life. But then because the subject was about like a breakup and then the boyfriend that got breakup was like, that's actually, you can't put that out or I'm going to sue you. This is where we get into the murky part about creative inspiration. So I do feel for Sonia, as far as like, like Shane said, like the the social dynamics of her sort of like not giving Don a heads up. Was Don a friend? Was she just part of this weird writing community? And she was kind of like a colleague, not even that. Yeah. Like Sonia knew what she was doing was a little bit shitty. 100%. Was it wrong? I don't know. 
but did the talent of the piece stand on its own? It would seem so. So it's like, it seems Sonya does have talent. So now Don, I think about in a very empathetic way, because I, I feel like the thing that hurts most for Don is like, one, obviously you're getting made fun of, two, all of your worst fears that maybe people are snickering at, like your sort of, your grandiose sort of like a display of this altruistic act that you did is all true. But we forget the element that Don herself is a writer. And I think the thing that killed her about this was in her mind, maybe she thought this was my story to write. And I could have been the toast of this writing community. Like this was my big break. And Sonya took it, which I do not think is true. I, 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 well, Sonya even said, write your story then. Exactly. This is inspiration. 100%. But I think that's why Dawn is so hurt because in her mind, although I don't think is necessarily true that this is Sonya taking her big break by taking her story. But it's like, it's not that your story is super unique. It's like Sonya was able to have the vessel through which to actually create the piece that resonated. Like Don, what were you doing? You know, you were just, you're making Facebook posts, but that doesn't mitigate the crushing sort of probably hurt Don probably felt like when you read all of, you know, the, she's suing for damages and all that stuff. I can only imagine Don not sleeping at night. Like, I can't imagine the confluence of emotions, negative emotions that must have swirled around her when one, she realized it was her story. Two, she was the butt of the joke. Three, her writing wasn't getting recognized. Four, Sonya was being celebrated. Like it is like, uh, that's pretty devastating. So I feel bad for both of them in a lot of ways. And like, what's Sonya or what's Don Dorland really guilty of? Honestly, like just being a little braggadocious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she's guilty of breaking the writer's code. The fact that Don is a writer makes it much worse because she knows the game, which is you take things that you've observed in your life and sometimes you use it as a springboard in one of your own stories. And it, it's so ironic because the whole story is about a white woman making the a spotlight be on her. And then this happens again in real life when Sonia's story is taken away from her and it's all about Dawn again and her feelings. And Sonia's 100%. just like, welcome to the story of my life being put put off to the side. Absolutely. This is what makes it also is all of these sort of like, even as you're reading it, you feel like you're in a meta experience. But um, Maxi, did you find you sided with either Don or Sonia? I, I know this was sort of the crux of, of the ask in our, our prep for this. Oh, uh, no, I think I agree with what you said, Mike. It's like you kind of have empathy for both of them. I know, to be honest, all I could think about was all the times I've just ripped off ver verbatim things my friends have said and wondering <laughs> who's going to sue me. So it's like I made a TikTok the other day about how Paul Angua from The Tragically Hip said that Gordani was relentless like a dog on a bone. And then I was like, and then we use that very exact line in our song. That but Paul the secret said. ingredient is being forthcoming about it. And they even talk about this yeah. in the article. Had she just said and hadn't denied it initially, it would have been a lot easier for her to defend Sonia. But it's just yeah. Sonia kind of acted like, oh, it wasn't really about this Facebook post at all. And then some lies kind of unfurled and she had to admit that, okay, it was, but I, I made some revisions to it, but they weren't quite enough. You know what? In a funny way, uh, I do, I think, actually have more, yeah, just overall a lot more sympathy for Dorlin because she just doesn't have as much going on in her life. She clearly is insecure about stuff. She clearly has a harder time with friends. Like there's just a bunch of things that like in the power dynamics of like group settings, I always feel for the person that like has just a harder time even though oh, she's yeah. like a privileged white person in in a lot of in like objective ways clearly sonia is the cool kid mm -hmm. <laughs> and the successful kid so even though you know sonia is an asian american and she's had to deal with that aspect in her entire life uh dorlin you know clearly you know is is a pretty upset person uh 
And I feel for that, too. Well, and she's angry about something that she's claiming she's angry about something when she's really more angry about being hurt. That people are talking behind her back and this is her way to lash out. Right. And I definitely feel like I've been Dawn more in my life than I've been Sonya. Well, there you go. Uh, Listeners, read it. Let us know your thoughts. It was a compelling piece because, again, it hits sort of many aspects um, sort of on the spectrum of interesting things, which is like social dynamics, uh, a group dynamics, popularity, you know, uh, creative license. There's sort of a lot going on in this plagiarism, plagiarism. It's all there. It's all there. I'm sure Brent Hodge will make a a documentary about it one day or not. I don't know. Uh, But... That is my segue to Mr. Brent Hodge, who is our feature guest uh, today. Uh, just as an order of business, stick around till after the video, uh, the interview, because we're gonna have a Shane surprise, which is exciting. Max, are you gonna be able to stick around for Shane surprise? Yeah, I am. Let's fucking do it. That's exciting. All right, so Mr. Brent Hodge. Uh, Great conversation, like I said off the top. He's a friend of the pod. Uh, he does great work. Go check out the Chris Farley doc. Check out who let the dogs out. Uh, it goes down the list. Uh, Pistol Shrimps. He's got he's got lots of stuff. And most recently as Farmer Bro, which is the story of Martin Shkreli. And this is an interesting one because Brent puts himself in the documentary. He he moves in uh, to an apartment uh, building that is also occupied by Martin Shkreli in New York City. Uh, and, and it is fascinating. You can find that documentary everywhere now uh, where you find these things streaming. Um, guys. Do you want to get to Brent? Do it. All right, uh, Brent, welcome back to the show. Uh, a, a, a return guest, which we're always happy to have. You got a new movie out, Farmer Bro. We're going to get into all that. Uh, but right before we started recording, it seemed like uh, you, Max, you and Ash saw Brent. He has a doppelganger in Toronto. Where, where are you right now, Brent? Are you on the West Coast? I'm in, in New York right now. Oh, you're back in New York. Sweet. Yep. Oh, good. The scene of the Farmer Bro uh, 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 movie. So we can we can circle back to that. But what's what's this I hear about a, uh, a doppelganger, Maxie? Uh, yeah, well, we just thought we saw Brent. And then it turns out you're not in Toronto. And it turns out you have a doppelganger. And people send photos of this person to you all the time that are in Toronto. My question is, um, is the doppelganger better looking than you or worse looking than you? Because this is like, you want the, the doppelganger to be better looking than you. Because if it's sort of an ugly guy, you're like, I, people think I look like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, wh- where I've are we at with that? I've seen like zoomed in Bigfoot type photos where you're like, okay. oh, that, that's me? Like off to the edge. And I, I have long hair now. And so I'm like, you haven't seen me in a while because that's a short hair, Brent Hodge. And uh, mm. he definitely has better style than me. <laughs> I think like I was like I remember seeing him going I I wish I had those shoes those are dope shoes um but this <laughs> this is shoes, yeah. this is common I've had the, there's a guy and he's in he, he he's downtown Toronto and you're not the first to be like I saw you you didn't even turn around uh, I, I saw mm-hmm. you yesterday you're you're here aren't you and I like it happens constantly so we got to find him if you're out there oh, that's your next doc <laughs> yeah who's finding the real Brent Hodge real yeah. Brent Hodge <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you've been good. You've been busy. You've been working on this doc. I feel like, so when we had you on, uh, last time we were discussing, we went into everything like, uh, who let the dogs out, uh, the Chris Farley doc, a bunch of stuff you've been working on. And I remember after we wrapped sort of off mic, you were like, I'm actually working on this doc. 
or this this idea, this this thing about Martin Shkreli, and it was very intriguing then, and now cut to you know years later, a, a, a getting through a pandemic, and it's finally here. Um, you're doing it with uh, like Blumhouse's production company. It's it's a very big deal. It's very exciting. All three of us have seen it. Um, how does it feel for you to finally have it done? It, how are you feeling about it going forward? Oh, this one's been it's been so it's five years in the making. Um, this one's been a, like a, a real like labor of love. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy it came out. We were supposed to launch like a month after the pandemic hit. So April of, of 2019, 21, whatever, two years ago. And then we just held off and I'm happy we held off one because we got Blumhouse month, which is October. They kind of own Halloween month and we were launching. Mm-hmm. So I, I was happy the way that this went, but we were supposed to do a big hot dogs launch in Toronto and you know, just the pandemic hit us. So it was, it was done after three years and we've been, we've been waiting for two years to put it out. How many years were you willing to film this doc for? Well, here's the crazy thing. And for people who haven't seen the film, it's about Martin Shkreli. Uh, he's the, the guy who raised the price of Daraprim, bought the Wu-Tang album, and then he went to jail uh, for completely unrelated incidences in, in hedge fund fraud. So he went to jail really fast. He actually was on bail. And then he posted, he posted a, a, a want for Hillary Clinton's hair. He wanted a piece of her hair to clone her to look for Parkinson's disease. It was just like a total troll move. And that got him thrown in jail. So we were following him and I go and, you know, I live in his apartment building. I get to know this guy and he goes to jail the next day after he invites me into his apartment building. So it, I would have followed him for another like year at least to really get to know him, but he went to jail so quickly. All right, okay, so off the, again, we've all seen it, it's great. Uh, how much are we going to get into? Are we trying to hold back spoilers? Because there's so much about the mechanics of this this film that I know Shaney probably wants to. I yeah. wanted Maxi. We have questions, so are we just all on the table? I so, think we get into it because I'm people down. know the Scrubby story to a degree. Okay, so it's not like there's a spoiler at the end where like, oh, he didn't go to jail or something. It's like no. Well, and I've yeah. seen interviews so with Brent where he said he didn't care. That's why I was preparing my questions with someone who didn't care really about spoilers. It's more about the journey, right, than the destination. We're letting our listeners know if you if if you want to sort of uh, experience it, uh, sort of uh, unexplained or, or, or dug into, go pause the podcast now, go watch it, and then come back. But from this point on, we're getting into this this film. Yep. Um. All right. Who wants to start? Me. Okay. Shane, so go for it. You move into. How do I say his last name? Shkreli. I hate his last name. How do I say it? I just. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Don't we just hate him? Uh. Yeah. Shrell. Shrell. S H. So you move into Martin's apartment (laughs) and this is a very wealthy man and you're, you're moving in, not just to move in, you're moving in to get closer to him to film this documentary. How much a month was rent? Not a lot. This is what's, this is what's crazy about Martin Screlly. At the time when we moved in, he was apparently worth a hundred million dollars. Apparently he's buying Wu-Tang albums for 2 million bucks. He's buying all this weird stuff online. Now at this point, he's in jail and the FBI is trying to find $7 million in assets from him because that's how much he owes. He, did, he posted bail for $5 million. Like this, this, this guy had real numbers. His apartment is nothing. It's in like, it's, this is not somebody who has that kind of money. This is what's weird about him and the way he looks at money and sees money. This is like a, a cooped up one bedroom in Manhattan. And he's buying albums for $2 million bucks that just sit on, on the table. It, it, the, the juxtaposition was really strange. So it wasn't what do you chuck at all. What do you chuck that up to? Do you think that he has the money or do you think he actually doesn't have the money? Like or that he's not cash fluid? No, I think his I think his relationship with money and the idea that it's just a transaction, um, probably the same way that he sees like humanity and people. Uh, I think they sort of coincide where it's never been about money 
uh, you know, running these businesses isn't about money. He never grew up with money. So his, his relationship with it's really different. Um, he's just sort of like has a, a social, uh, oddness to, to money that I think he is not flashy. He wears terrible clothes. Um, he can afford anything. He doesn't have a car, but there's a lot to it. This is a real inside baseball question. Um, and maybe I'm asking uh, maybe on behalf of our friend, Mark Myers, who also made a documentary with Shane and he wants to do more, more documentaries when you're putting up the money for the apartment. And I know it's not a huge sum of money. Cause as you said, it's like a pretty modest apartment. God is it coming out of you, your personal bank account or, and, and you just know you'll get, you'll recoup it if it sells and you're like crossing your fingers that you're going to sell it to Blumhouse uh, or, or is, is there money up front that you are working with just like functionally when it comes to making a documentary, like how do you think about where the next, you know, 12 months of your life salary is, is going to come from? No, it's smart. So if you guys want to dive into this part, this is my favorite part of filmmaking. <laughs> like I, I didn't go to, Budgets? Uh, yeah. but no, honestly it is like, I didn't go to just like show business. Like I didn't go to a film school. I went to business school and the way to run a documentary company and a way to want, run a production company is so fascinating. I find it extremely artistic and, um, I kind of run them like food trucks, <laughs> like every film I don't, a lot of companies like a Blumhouse, for example, is like a massive restaurant and they have a ton of employees and they run it a certain way and they, they sort of make, make certain amount of kind of dishes and they roll them out. We treat them like little food trucks all over the world where I have a production in Portland today and another one in San Francisco happening and I'm zooming into a, a, a shoot that's in Canada and all of them are kind of ran differently. Um, some are backed by investors, some are pre-sold to networks. Some are rolled over from the last film I made and made profits on. And so they're, they're just sort of ran in, in, in different ways. And they're really small crews and they focus on one or two sort of things versus these, these bigger stories. So with Pharma Bro, if you wanted to see it as a, as a food truck, like we rolled over some money from our last film that we, we did with some investors and they reinvested right into this one. These people just trust me to have fun and want to do bizarre stuff. So that was the first step to going, I'm moving into this apartment building and I'm going to see what I get. And the crazy thing is like the barrier to entry in terms of cash to start a documentary is way lower than, than it would be for a big feature film. You got to raise $10 million. You got to get a studio. So in this case, it was, I have to move into apartment building and start recording his live streams and getting to know him with a cell phone camera. That's, that's not that expensive. It just takes a lot of time. Uh, like a lot of time when you think about how much he's live streaming. And we got 500 plus hours of live streams of this guy. Like he's just recording everything. So we would do shift work with editors and they would stay up all night and like record this stuff. And in the morning be like, yeah, you're, he, he stayed up till five in the morning. And we would just sort of like roll these over and start binning them and putting them in folders. And, and before you know it, you, you kind of created a, a, like a bit of a skeleton to a documentary. Now, who do we go get? How do we do that? Um, Blumhouse came on, and for people who don't know, Blumhouse is like a, a an incredible horror film company. It's ran by Jason Blum. There's a there's a great podcast. It's Planet Money on Jason Blum and how he runs his company. If you ever want to check it out, it's extremely not to not to pull people away from this podcast no, no. to a different one. Um, but they do that in podcasts. They, there's ads in between. You can do that. <laughs> uh, but he runs his company in a really really interesting way, where he makes these micro budget horror films. And then sells them and, and does like a first look deal with Universal and sells them for a lot of money. Get Out is a good example. Paranormal Activity is a good example that he did. So he did a documentary called The Jinx. You guys seen this? Oh, yeah. It's the best. Oh, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. And when I saw that, 
I was like, I need to find my Robert Durst. This like our age, a weirdo who has way more money and no soul. And it, it was Martin. It was like, this is him. And I knew immediately that Blumhouse was the company. They had to be the company for this. And he jumped on it right away. He's like, you know, what are your costs? What's the P&L? And he, he really does get into the, the sort of logistics of a documentary. And I was like, I don't spend that much. It's just me and, uh, and a few editors. And so he's like, I'm in. And that was it. And so he started funding it after, after a while. When we started to go do interviews, he started funding it at that point. And there is some pretty great interviews in it. I mean, you're talking to Ghostface Killer and so many interesting people. What was the hardest interview to secure? Ben Brathman, probably, uh, Martin's lawyer. He, I just felt he was such a big piece to this puzzle. And Ben Brathman is a highly respected bigwig lawyer. He repped Jay-Z. He repped P. Diddy. He repped Harvey Weinstein. Like, this guy, he always seems to pick people. I don't know what the, the right word is, like, like like villains or something but he 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 seems to he seems to f- do well with very high like high, he's a high-priced lawyer um and he has a, a sort of a weird roster of clients martin was on there he wouldn't talk until martin was in properly in jail and had been sentenced so that took a long time very responsive but just took a long time to get that interview the Ghostface killer one was just phenomenal i no joke ran into him at the airport and I just came from a meeting at Blumhouse and I said, we have to have Wu-Tang in this film or else we don't have a film. Like, I, I can't finish this film until we have someone from Wu-Tang representing that album. And I get to the airport and he's right in front of me. And I was like, he, Mr. Killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. Killer. <laughs> so formal, yeah. I was like, You've, you, you, I need you in this movie. And I start showing him all the animation. There's a lot of animation in this film. And I started showing him like we animated him and I was going through my phone and he just gave me his phone number. He's like, fine, you got to come to Staten Island, but let's do it. <laughs> so another crazy. Uh, uh, another person you have in this 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 film is Christy Smythe, uh, who's the former Bloomberg news reporter. Uh, I'm so Maxie and Shane had watched the film before me. I watched it last night and I'm maybe 20 minutes in and I'm like, hey. Does it ever talk about how this is the woman that blew up her marriage and fell in love with Shkreli while she was covering him? Because I was, I was like, is that her? Like, because I thought I recognized her from these stories. My question is, you as a, as a filmmaker, you get her obviously before this happens. I'm assuming, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. So she's part of your production. You've got this time to sit down with her. When that news story breaks, I imagine you're still in post and all that. Are you going, holy shit? I can't believe she's the one that literally is in the news cycle now for sort of leaving her marriage for Martin. What are your thoughts as that's happening in real time after you have your interviews? But, but didn't you talk to that with her, about that with her in the doc? Or am I missing something? Was that a via text and my brain's just filling it in like she talked about it? No, this is what's crazy, Shane. So so when I interviewed Christy Smythe, first off, it was four years ago that that interview happened. Like, like I said, this is a five-year journey. She was a Bloomberg uh, writer at that point. And had broke a story about Martin going, saying the FBI was was under he was under investigation by the FBI. And I was like, she's she's a, a great reporter. We should talk to her. When she sits down, she's telling me she's writing Martin's book, which is called Smirk, best best name ever. I wish I came up. I Very wish I came fitting, up with that yeah. name. And uh, <laughs> and she said like she 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 has been getting to know him um, and, and and sort of like has a liking to him, but never thought it would go down this route. And I say in the film, like, do you, do you, I can't tell if you like this guy. I thought you were a reporter. Like, where do you sort of sit? And she, she sort of described his facial, facial features and his women in his life. And I'm like, how do you, how do you know this guy so well? 
Uh, and then later I saw her at the trials because I went to every trial for Martin Scarlett and she was sitting with his family. And I was like, what the hell's going on? But, but when we did mm. the interview, she was still with her husband. She even said, I've talked to her since she said she was still going through like her journey of, you know, life, life and love journey. Uh, but then since then, um, when she, that, when that news came out, that's actually what sold our, our movie. Like we, we had a really hard time mm. selling, selling this movie. Uh, this one, just nobody wants to touch Martin. Like he is a, he's kind of a dumpster fire, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like yeah. when you, when you mention his name, most networks get scared. They don't want to touch pharma. They don't want to touch this guy. I think everything he touches turns to fire. And when her story came out, it was like every streamer and everybody kind of turned back and was like, oh, do you still have that movie? Is this thing sold yet? And that's what got us with 1091 and and and, and further. So so I, I kind of like have to thank her in some ways. Did you have to resist the urge to shift your doc a bit and actually do 20 minutes on that story? Because that story could be its own doc, sort of the psychology of her leaving him. I mean, we've seen that story before, sort of someone falling in love with an imprisoned person. But did you have to resist the urge to go further down that road? Because you do acknowledge it, but it's it's like in a text near the end sort of deal. You sort of reveal what had happened. But yeah, like I was wondering what your thoughts on that were. You know, like there's all these Britney Spears documentaries coming out right now, and they're 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 sort of six months behind the story that's happening today. And I was just sort of wanted to be a little cautious of the idea that this isn't really an evergreen story because Martin continues to be in the news and change things. He's trying to get out right now because he says he has a cure for COVID. He just keeps sort of doing stuff constantly. So I wanted to sort of put buttons on a lot of these. Like the Wu-Tang album got sold, but we don't have that in our film. Um, like there's 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 points where I, I thought like her his and her story are going to sort of continue and have their own journey. Um, but we definitely need to mention it. And I didn't want to re-interview her. Uh, I really just didn't. I thought I got what I needed out of, out of that interview. And I think we allude to the fact that she does like him and, and she sort of explains that part. Um, so that was sort of the reason for it just being a button at the end versus kind of diving into another bit. The other, the other thing too, with a lot of these docs, this is an 80 minute film. And I have to do that more and more. Like I used to go, well, it could be three hours. It could be like a six part series. No, honestly, Martin's story as it is right now is an 80 minute film. Um, It's no longer. It's no bigger than that. It's no shorter than that. And I sort of had to stick. I have to stick to that more and more as I tell these. If not, it kind of gets overwhelming and you go all over the place. So when we sort of hit the 80, I was like, the story's going to continue. And that can be a part two. Maybe when he gets out of jail and they have kids together or something, I'll follow. (laughs) I'll go to to their wedding and film it. I don't know. Um, also, I thought you did a very good job, um, of sort of explaining the, uh, predatory or exploitative nature of the sort of pharmaceutical industry and how he was able to sort of basically do this thing that everyone else had been doing, which is like buying these sort of like obscure drugs and then jacking the prices that I felt like it was because I think some people have like read pieces about that in the times or whatever, but I thought that you did a very good job in your film of sort of like, um, explaining that construct and how Martin was able to sort of not even exploit it. He literally just did what everybody's always been doing. He was just a very sort of, um, public face of that process. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I don't know much about the drug industry. Like, I think growing up in Canada and living in Canada, we are sheltered for, for like very good reasons for it. Like Daraprim in Canada is $5. The generic version of that pill is $5 and it never went up and never went down in Canada. In America, that exact same thing is as a branded is a branded treatment is is seven hundred fifty dollars a pill, and and I just don't I don't understand it fully, and I just came from the idea that the audience won't either. Like why mm-hmm. why, and why should we? We don't understand what the Orphan Drug Act is. We don't understand what toxoplasmosis is. 
We don't understand why there's loopholes in, in, in any of the insurance companies and why they're allowed to even charge this much and have and hold patents. This stuff's all quite complicated. So my goal, and I'm really glad you said that, Mike, it's like my goal is just to really strip this down, talk to specialists, talk to different doctors and like get the Cole's notes on what all this is and why, why he could do it legally. That was the main point. Like stick, stick on Martin and why the system allows Martin Shkreli's to exist. So I, I, I'm really proud of that part of this movie, just you know, showcasing what happened and why we hate him so much. Well, another thing that you addressed was how uh, there was uh, some misinformation going around that Shkreli might not be as bad of a guy as we think because it's really only screwing the big companies and people who can't afford it can get the, the pill quite easily. And then you spoke to a patient who said, no, nah, that's not actually the case. I just, I had to contact uh, Martin and tell him directly, I can't afford this pill. And then he got it to me. But there was many people who actually couldn't afford the pill and whose insurance wouldn't cover it. Oh, so I talked to 15 mm-hmm. patients in, in total. And yeah. that, that was the only guy, Patrick Rice is in the movie. He's the only one that was willing to go on camera. And I think there's a naive activity to like the idea that every patient wants to be in the spotlight. And that, that was something I was like, when I was reading articles about Martin, I was shocked that no one had talked to Martin himself. No one had asked Wu Tang any questions. No one had asked Ben Braffman, his lawyer, but most importantly, why aren't we talking to any patients? Like if they're the ones that are getting hurt from this, why has no one come forward? That was like my biggest question. And I, I understood quickly why. And most people are sick. Most people don't want to Talk about HIV if they have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people just they don't even want to give Martin any any more uh, any more spotlight than he had. This guy that had it, um, yeah, he couldn't get the pill. He got it off of Reddit. Like, how is that? How is that real? <laughs> how is this allowed? Um, and so you're you're right. Like the insurance company idea and the loophole and Martin saying that that insurance companies will cover it. That's not the case. That's not the case of everybody I talk to. Um, so, you know, insurance companies find a way out of stuff too. So there's so many angles to the story. There's obviously like the pop culture part. There's the pharmaceutical part. Uh, you know, there's like the relationship part. There's this, where he comes from. How did you like, I was, when I was watching, I was like, Oh, the, the challenge of going, okay, this is the first chapter. There's going to be five chapters or there's five themes that we're going to spend, you know, 10 minutes going to his hometown. We're going to spend this much time with Wu-Tang Clan. Like, how, was that hard to be able to go, what part of the story deserves X amount of attention? How did you, How did? and how many revisions did you have to do? And what, what kind of notes did you get? No, 100%. There was, there was, you look at the pie chart of like a biopic on somebody and like, do we talk about his girlfriends? Do we talk about his life before? How did he get here? Uh, his trial, you know, you talk, you sort of go through all this. How much, how much should we balance between pharma and just him being a total asshole? <laughs> like, how do we do this? Um, I did feel, and it's sort of going back to the, the idea of like, I give myself a button on these movies. Like it has to be 80 minutes. And so we have to fit it in there. If not, you can go, just go forever. I, I felt like, there, Martin as a CEO of a drug company is not that interesting to me. Like him raising the price of Daraprem is like, all right, we're just regurgitating what's already out there. It was the Wu-Tang album part of things that made me go like, okay, this guy's worth, this is worthy of a film now. 
because whether we like it or not, he's in pop culture. Like he's, he's, he's there, he's embedded in pop culture and owns something that is part of our life. And we don't have the chance to look away now. And none of us want to, cause it's a car crash anyway, but, but he, he did that. And I'm, I'm like, all right, so I have to balance some parts of good and evil here, but the no process of that is none. This is the best thing about these kind of docs is if you go and make it as an acquisition versus getting commissioned from a network, uh, you get to go make your own movie. No one's going to give you notes. They got minimal notes from from Blumhouse, like very, very minimal. What about internal notes, though? When you watch it, do you ever think, oh, no, I'm making him too much of a sympathetic character. This is going to look bad on me. I have to cut this. Like, did was there a lot of notes that you were giving yourself? Yeah, I think there was sort of a battle between that, like getting to know, you want to get to know him, but you, you know, you don't have any sympathy for him. And I think that the, the heart, some, some people say like, you're on his side when you do this and making it extremely clear. I think this guy's a total asshole. <laughs> um, but it also, my opinion doesn't really matter. Like it's the opinion of the people that have been affected. I think that matter the most in this, um, you know, if he didn't buy my name as a journalist. He didn't, he didn't buy my domain name. He bought these women's name and harassed them. Like we got to hear from them. Uh, he didn't raise the price of Dareprim, which affected my life. It affected Patrick Rice and these different people. So, yeah, I think there was there there was a lot. I'll give you an example. The people we cut from this film made him look a lot better in some ways. Like he did some philanthropy work, uh, actually with a, with a doctor out of Vancouver. And we interviewed this doctor who said great things about him. And I was like, I don't want to include this. I don't need to include this. This is not this doesn't this isn't what I want. This isn't the story I want to tell. Uh, so. Yeah, there is like there's a lot of internal notes. I'd say I did 10 rounds of this movie or more. What what about when you bring him the beer? That is such an interesting part of the movie. And to be honest, when I saw it, I did feel for Martin because it seemed like you were his only friend in the world at that point. Well, this is you know what this is. This gets to to Shane. What you're saying is as I was watching that part, my question for you is, did you ever reveal yourself as a journalist or a documentary filmmaker? Because when you see him on the street and then he knows you only as a neighbor and I'm guessing you're clandestinely filming. He doesn't know you're filming in those, right? He I had my phone out like it was a he's pretty. So so prior to that, he had a bunch of meetups and this guy has cameras in front of him all the time. So like, did he know I was I think he knew I was filming that. But I never had him like sign anything and say, oh, hey, like, make sure you sign. Like he he but but having my camera out or having my phone in front of him is, is pretty regular for this guy. So, um, OK, so so back to Shane's question, when I think of um, I thought of like movies like Donnie Brasco or these movies where like an informant ends up sort of having sympathy for their target. Uh, when you're bringing him beer or you're watching 500 hours of live streams and all that stuff like are you connecting with him as a human in that in that apartment? Are you are you like nervous because it feels like a sting operation? Like, yeah, to Shane's question, what's going through your mind during that sequence in real time, not just what we saw on camera? I think that sequence for me was I had to I had to cross the world like the digital world. It, it felt like I was in the Matrix when I go across to his live stream because that's the only world we'd seen him to that point. I think the hard part is even when he's on his live streams, he's performing, in my opinion. I think he's he's like he's 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 created some persona everywhere he goes, when he goes outside, when he's on his live streams, when he's talking on the news. And I was like, I gotta just see this guy face to face. I have to bring him a beer and sit down and start to talk to him. And this was like scratching the surface in round one of that. The problem was he went to jail the next day. So literally the next day, I woke up in the morning and I was like, Oh, Martin's in the news. Oh, he's gone. 
He's in jail. Like, I felt that was our first step to trying to get to actually know this guy. Um, and maybe there was nothing to get to know. I think that's what's amazing about doing these docs is it's an experiment. There's really no ending. I can't write this. Like, I could never, ever write this film. Uh, CEO of a pharmaceutical company buys Wu-Tang album, goes to jail for Hillary Clinton's hair. Like, that's amazing. And, oh, and by the way, I went to his house the night before. Like, there's none, there's nothing in that that is even valid in Hollywood. <laughs> Um, so for, for me, I just felt it was exciting. I wasn't scared. I wasn't like, some people are like, do you ever feel like you're in danger? And I was like, no, like, no, not at all. This guy's like little and extremely quiet. And he has a robust sort of attitude online, but never, not at all. Not, yeah, but the scared is an interesting choice of words because Shane's, Shane was saying he actually felt empathy or, or, or he felt sympathy for Martin, like almost like he felt like he had a friend. Did you feel any of that sort of, I guess the word would be guilt that you sort of have infiltrated and in, you represented yourself as something that you may, maybe weren't? I think, um, I think I represented myself as somebody who was actually down to listen. I, I started questioning why he was even live streaming at one point. I'm like, he sits here every night and does this. Like he goes to sleep and the live stream is still on. He plays guitar. He makes food. He does finance lessons. He shares his screen all the whole time. And you're like, what is he? What is the inside here? What is he doing? And I realize it's just a guy who, who has something to say and no one's listening. And like, isn't that kind of all of us? So if you like, if you look at, if you look at, isn't that, like, isn't that what I'm trying to do when I'm making a movie? Don't I just want, well, I want people to hear me. Don't I want, am I trying to say something to the world? And so I think that there was a connection in, in there and I have empathy for anyone. I, I keep getting this this question in interviews of like, is he capable of good? They're like, what? Yes, like he's <laughs> he's a human. Like, well, of course he's capable of good. Do you think he's going to come out of jail and be be good? And like, I don't. That's his. That's the. That's Farnbro too. Like, that's his choice. Um, <laughs> and we'll film it. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, there's an element to him that's extremely fascinating. Like that, I cannot take away from him. I, I think you can't take your eyes off this guy. And his his answers to these questions and some of the stuff is funny. Like we gotta admit, some of some of the stuff he and some of the trolling he does is pretty hilarious. Uh, you know, if you call into his live stream, he gives you his phone number. He tells you where he lives. If you call in and say something crass, he'll find your mom's number online and call your mom right on a live stream, and then three way call you and call you in and say, "Do you want to tell your mom something?" Wow. <laughs> like that's that is funny. That stuff's funny to me. Uh, but then, but then he, he takes it, always takes it too far and like buying domain names of people and the power of, of, of like harassing people online. Like if you look into the Laura Dukas story, who I tried to interview, I asked, I asked her to do an interview five different times. She's like, I cannot be, you know, like, you have no idea. I have security guards outside my house because of Martin Screlly followers. So that's not, that's real now, right? That becomes, that's not an online joke anymore. Um, but I had empathy for a guy who was trying to say something and maybe didn't know how to say it and get it out properly. I mean, I think there's a social awkwardness to the way he really did a lot of this. Um, and I also have like empathy for the fact that he's caught up in, um, in, in like a system that allows him to do it a little bit. Uh, like, you know, he, he, he didn't do anything illegal with the drug in the drug industry. And I think that's, that's, that's weird. Like he doesn't know the sort of the, the boundaries um, that's sad. That's like really sad that he doesn't sort of see that that hurts real humans. Do you think he w is autistic? That's alluded to in the film, but in your opinion? Yeah. Yeah, I do. I think, I think there's some kind of social, uh, I don't know what the term is like, uh, 
deficiency or, or yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the, we alluded it to in the film. Another person we interviewed was like a psychologist who breaks him down. We didn't put it in the film because he didn't actually properly study Martin and didn't do any tests on Martin. So I didn't want to make assumptions. His lawyer said that they did, they did some, some work and that he definitely would have some kind of autism. Um, yeah, no, I absolutely do. What's the profile of a Martin Shkreli fan? Like, like, were you able to identify like this is a this is the type of person? Because whenever you see like somebody who's a fan of a Shkreli or a serial killer or something, like who is that person? Maybe that's your next target. Like, do you have a sense of who that person is? Billy the Fridge, who's in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. he's, yeah, he's you know the, the like he's a great example of a friend. And Martin has an online community, like a huge online discord community. Um, and they all still chat and talk. Uh, but, but Billy's sort of my representation of, of who that is. Like he, he is, and he's funny and he's, he's very smart. Like these guys aren't, it's not like they're, they're Trump supporters and like, you know, bigots or anything. Like some of these people have really, uh, you know, high society jobs and are, are really into it. I think, I think that that would probably represents a Screlly fan the most guys. I got to say, this is, this is fascinating. Not everyone like watches the film and talks about it in detail. <laughs> I really, like, I really appreciate, I really appreciate it. Cause I sort of sometimes forget that we're going through something when we make these, I'm sure it's like, it's like everything you guys do. Max, I'm sure it's the same with making music is you don't remember every moment. You just sort of remember what you you just you just learn and, and take away things and go on the journey. And I think with filmmaking, it's like some of it's just the arc of the story and you have to explain that. And other parts of it is is like, like, I love the music in this film. I'm a huge fan of music. I used to work at CBC and it's Graham from from the band Holy Fuck did this. And like, oh, it's just it sonically to me is just it's like a masterpiece. And I, it's not it's not me. It's, it's like me. Working. I was literally going to be texting you to pitch so I could do the music for your next. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You're getting that text on a few, like literally right after we get on. Like, what are you doing next? Tell me, let me do it. Uh, but Graham obviously yeah, is a master and the music, it really did stand out as like, this is so on point and you know, such an important part of how the story moves along. Um, I kind of a, a bigger, broader question for you. Like, you know, you are a documentary filmmaker. It feels like we're living in like peak documentary times between all the streaming services, all the long form narrative podcasts. Like what do you, and and I can imagine it's like, it's great in some ways because there's a appetite for it. But in, on the other hand, it's like, there's so much to compete with. What, what do you see the next couple of years looking like? Like, do you want to do more because there's more films being bought is it harder than ever? Like, what do you make of the current state of affairs when it comes to documentaries? No, this is the, you're right. This is the heyday right now. This is incredible. And I mean, you got to thank Hulu and Netflix. And when I first started making documentaries, it was like NFB and CBC. And if they say no, like there isn't even a YouTube to put these out. Like you can't, you can't take these anywhere. Um, and now every single pitch we have goes Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, all over. Everybody's doing them, and they really made them popular. Um, it's 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 crazy to me where you go on HBO uh, or Crave in Canada, and like our documentary is right next to Game of Thrones. Like it, like that little thumbnail is right next to it. I'm like, do you know the difference between the amount of money I had to spend versus what they spent? Like, how are we even allowed? To be <laughs> to be next to you on the trending, this is this is nuts. It's cool though; it legitimizes the whole thing though in, a, in an awesome way. It's like 
a band signed to a major label versus the kid who makes it in his basement still has just as good of a chance of getting listened to. It's unbelievable. It's actually unbelievable to think that, 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 that of where we are. And this is what I think is going on with the documentary industry is that we used to just be lumped into docs. It was like real life stories go here. And that's, you get to watch a whole bunch. And now it's really separating into, there's music docs, sociopolitical docs, pop culture docs, comedy docs, horror docs. And so I've sort of separated my ideas and my food trucks are becoming like more specialized. We used to like not just make like tacos, we make like Indian non-bread tacos now. <laughs> it like becomes this like little, <laughs> I, I keep using this analogy, but it's my favorite one in the sense that you get specialized. And so for me, this is my first horror documentary. And I picked the best horror documentary company to, to work with. And I'm so proud and happy of it because it's my version of what a horror doc would be because it, it's real life and it's so funny that it's scary. Like, I can't believe this is real and this is scary and going to jail is scary and, uh, you know, having the power over patients' life is scary. And like, there's a lot more to it. Um, we primarily live in the, the comedy doc world. That's like my, my jam. I love, you know, from Farley to Who Let the Dogs Out. This is this has sort of become hybrids now. Uh, so I think, I think it's just going to grow and get better. I think what I'm doing now is like, I, I got into this by accident and I'm working backwards, which is work that I should have done and realized early. Like what are the great documentaries? What are the documentaries I like? Who are the greats? Like Errol Morris and Brett Morgan and like Rachel and Heidi who did Jesus Camp, Exit Through the Gift Shop. Like the kids stay in the picture. Like these are my favorite movies. And I never asked myself why. And I never even realized that they were even, you know, I, I remember now seeing Supersize Me in the movie theater in grade 11 and, and being like, oh, I, I, I could do a movie like this. But that never occurred to me till now when I like sort of said, oh, I'm a documentary filmmaker. Um, and so it's, I just think it's getting better and better. And I just think for me, I'm trying to do more back work to realize why we are here and like why we got very lucky to get here. Um, so that's, that's been exciting because there's some people that paved the way for this to happen that don't get recognition at all. Like Ken Burns, for example, is unbelievable. Like this is a God in, in my world and sure he gets PBS shows and he's getting a lot picked up, but have we ever really dissected what he had to go through to get those shows made? So. All right. We got to wrap this up. One more question. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe, maybe all three of us can have one last, but all at the same so time. Yeah, let's yeah. all talk. Run, and <laughs> yeah, Brent, you can exactly. choose which he one. He has to like figure best. it out. Yeah. Uh, so, so Shkreli is currently in jail, correct? Correct. Uh, you've had no contact with him? No, uh, I can't. I, I okay, I can't. So, so I guess my question would be then, uh, when he gets out, I assume he will see this. Have you thought at all about how he will perceive it or if he will reach out to you or if you will end up as someone on one of these lists, like you said, with other journalists? Um yeah, what are your thoughts there, sort of post-doc world with Shkreli out? And, and you know he's going to watch it. Of course he's going to watch it. I mean, Martin loves all the attention. I think he mm -hmm. loves any attention towards him. I weirdly think he's going to like it. I think he's going to go like, fine, <laughs> somebody actually listened. Somebody like went back to the Shkreli Albania mountains and understood where I'm from. Somebody didn't just throw up that I'm a headline. They actually dove deeper into it. Um, he might argue against some of the stuff we said, like interviewing Patrick Rice about the the insurance company stuff. But yeah, ultimately, I think he'll he'll enjoy it. And honestly, I don't really care. Like, this was never about me getting the authority to do his film. This was about an experiment, and and that's what was exciting for me. And I, and, I, and we had a really cool and different experiment. So whether he likes it, or, like he's not he's not the be all end all for me. It's more about an audience understanding. Shaney boy, okay. What was the hardest thing to cut from the film? And 
was there any music on the Wu-Tang album? Because <laughs> you probably know the answer, I think. So there is music on the Wu-Tang album, and actually it answers both your questions. It was the hardest thing for me to cut. Legally, I wasn't allowed to play it. When Trump won the election, Martin, as being the biggest troll that he is, said, I will play 10 minutes of the Wu-Tang album on a live stream when Trump wins this thing. And he did. He did it that night at like two in the morning and I recorded it. So I have it. Yeah, we have I have it, but I was never allowed to use it legally. You have to get sign off from the owner and everything. You guys know this with music rights. Uh, Yeah, it sounded good. So there is there is music there. Wow, uh, I was not cool? expecting you to reveal that because in the film later on, the uh, one of the producers of the album says that's why it's art. You you may never know, and now yes. we know, which is amazing. I, I mean, Max, I would love your opinion uh, as a musician. Like, is you don't have to love Martin or hate him. Anything that music move is was pretty incredible. I think by Wu Tang, just the idea of bringing value to one album and Martin actually throwing down $2 million, putting his mouth money where his mouth is. And it's like, to me, that was a fascinating moment in music. In my opinion. I know. I absolutely agree. We were actually, uh, I don't know if we talked about it on the pod, but amongst friends, we were talking about how uh, an artist was commissioned by a gallery in Denmark to do um, redo an exhibit on like the nature of labor and in, in society and was paid a commission, paid like eighty thousand um, dollars to reproduce one of their works, and then the artist just handed in two completely blank canvases and called the exhibit "Take the Money and Run," <laughs> and basically said, "I encourage all artists if they're being paid. Like we live a very hard life. The artist life is basically impossible. So if anybody offers you money, just take the money and run. Fuck them, basically." And I, but that got me talking more about the nature of work and labor and what money's relationship is with art than if she just if the artist I don't know if it's he or she had to reproduce some kind of painting, right? Like the fact that it was a two blank canvases is amazing. So this idea that there's only one copy of the album, you know, like what does music mean? How should it exist in our lives? You know, what did it mean in the past? What does it mean now? There's all good questions. So I really do admire Wu-Tang for, for, for taking on a project like that. And then, yeah, for Screlly to like not publicize it is also kind of interesting. I don't know. Yeah, there's it's a lot to talk about. And overall, I do I do like it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it could have been handled or like executed better. But it was as an idea. It's fascinating. It's yeah, extremely yeah, fascinating. All right. Well, guys, I, this is the thing. Whenever we have Brent on, like I remember the last time you were on this podcast, we went for like an hour and 20 and then we we killed the mics and then we talked for like another fucking 40 minutes. So it's like, I feel like you, you are, you know, it's always such a fascinating conversation, whether it's the construct of the doc you're talking about or the industry in general. Um, I, I wish we could go longer, but uh, I hope the next time you're back in Toronto, uh, we can all get some drinks and, and hang out and have a chat. Yeah, that would be tons of fun. Can I um can I leave you guys with with uh this idea that's just percolating completely and I'm I'm pursuing it right Big now. Time. It's like my next oh, film. Oh good. And it's can with we Bl- leave this in the pod? Can we leave sure. I don't I don't see why not. Um this is with Blumhouse as well. So I'm going to keep working with them. I've had such a great experience. Uh this is the wildest thing. I can't stop thinking about it. So next idea up is out of Florida. Of of course it all leads <laughs> to Florida. So three kids from Northport, Florida, committed suicide in 2011 in high school. In March, in April, and May of 2011, right before graduating year, they committed committed uh, uh, suicide. And they didn't know each other. They weren't friends. They all went to this huge school called Northport High. The only correlation they had is that they were all being hypnotized by their high school principal. 
This is a true story. This is a true story. Wow. Wow. So that's the tease for your next big project. That's my next big project that we're just in development now and just kind of, it's it's one of our food trucks that we're like really actively pursuing. And your reactions just now is exactly what makes me pull into doing a film where I'm like that I have to have that feeling or I don't go after it at this point. If you're like, Oh, the biopic on, okay. I mean, I've seen, I've seen enough Muhammad Ali films. Thanks. Like I have to have something that it just, like I go to bed and go, uh Oh, uh Oh, I got to do that movie now. Uh Oh, how how many staff do do you have? Like in this phase of the development, how many, how much staff do you have working with you? Like on that particular project? Yeah. Three. Right. So you have like, what are the jobs? Hardcore researcher diving deep. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd have like a producer, probably like a manager, Ash, where, where she's doing like, I, I don't, I'm really bad at producing. I'm, I'm much better at directing. And then, and then um, if there's footage out there, we start, I always start with editors first, but mm-hmm. yeah, like it's honestly like a food truck. You're kind of like, well, we've got the prep mm-hmm. cook and we got someone who's got to drive the truck and mm-hmm. <laughs> someone's got to order the stuff. And then I kind of like put together it. So that's how I start them. They usually, you know, a documentary of, of. Of a th- like if you're going to do a three-part series, you usually get up to like 20 to 25 people. It's probably very similar to putting on a show, you know, mm-hmm. very, very similar where you're like the bigger this thing gets, we got to start adding more and more staff. And we have a video crew and we have all these people. Um, and then, the, you know, and then it, you it, have a drummer who insists on having a drum tech to hang out with them back there. <laughs> then you know, you that like, happen, that, how do we make any money off this? Yeah. It, but it also, <laughs> it, then it's sort of, it's funny with movies because it comes down to this in the end, which is just, three or four people on a zoom in like their own silo editing. And it goes, it kind of goes down to the weird bottleneck where editing becomes like the key to it. It's, it's probably like an album where you're sitting there just going, how is this me and an engineer now at this point? We're that far in, it was like this big. And now we're, we're down to like two of us exporting this thing. That's a very similar world. Um, I'll tell you my experience with Blumhouse. I always thought like, well, studio must be so much different. This must be such a different experience than my like indie world and the way I do it. It's really not. It's not. I think if anything, they just have more support and they push films out way harder and have a real plan and have kind of like gone through that before. I'd say I'd say that's the biggest difference. Oh god, this is so cool! All right, we yeah, keep, we, we, we get off talking, on all this. We? Yeah, all this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, yeah. Wow. Can I show you guys one other little thing? Yeah, um, we made a beer. I gotta get Ooh, you guys. Oh, the you know what? I we have to get even... you guys one. We didn't even get into the comic aesthetic and the villain sort of analogies that you made. But so for our listeners, this is what Brent is showing us is like a, a beer can. Uh, it's, it's called like Farmer. Is it beer? It's beer, right? Yeah, it's beer. Farmer Brew. Yeah, Farmer Bro, like which is using sort of this comic book aesthetic that you use throughout the film to sort of emphasize his villainous stature, which was a fascinating and I think effective choice. That's my favorite part about making docs right now too. sort of back to that question of, of you know, how has it grown? Um, you get to work with, like, I worked with Derek Pente and, and Mike Gaynor from Ghost Story Studios. Like, these are people I'm fans of, and they get to do, I, I knew I wanted to work with them. I knew I wanted to work with Holy Fucking Graham. Like, the, the people you kind of get to work with in a movie uh, that go beyond who you are is, is, is unbelievable. Like, I'm not a musician, and I love music. I absolutely love music. So to have those sort of people and those elements like it's a dream come true in a lot of ways okay i'm doing the next one i called it the florida guy the florida one (laughs) (laughs) we'll get you in (laughs) all right brent thank you so much for joining us today uh and all the best there in new york city and the next when you get back to toronto let's all get together for a drink we're gonna get together for some farmer brews we're gonna do it yes (laughs) okay bye guys thank you so much cheers nice to meet you Bye. bye
Thank you so much to Brent Hodge uh, for a great and long and in-depth conversation. We could always go much longer with Brent, as you heard, uh, as we were sort of uh, wrapping that conversation up. Guys, it is time for Shane's dessert. Well, full full disclosure, right off the bat, I want to say we did a Reba McIntyre interview today, like at the time of this recording. <laughs> we're loading up. It's been we a did a Brent day. interview. There's just so much <laughs> going on, and there's so much preparation for for both interviews that the you know, the Shane surprise or dessert or whatever you want to call it isn't actually going to pop off in the the best way here. <laughs> but to keep it somewhat thematic, I wanted to talk about plagiarism and, you know, comedy Ooh. a little bit, being a Don, being a Sonya. I've established earlier in the episode that I'm a bit of a Don. So yesterday I was out on a date night and uh, Alex. It'd be cool if you just said you were on, on a date. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I didn't say it was with my wife. It was a date yeah. night with the woman. She was a blonde. No, it was my wife. But she went to the, the washroom. So I do what everyone does. I start scrolling Instagram. And I notice that you have a yak back joke, Max. Oh, In- oh, I noticed this too. And I, okay, keep going. This is funny. And I'm just thinking, you know, this is obviously Greg, your, Greg Veerman, Mike's brother, who has stolen my joke and given it to you because you have this song called all roads and your voice is a little wonky in it purposely in a in a cool way some people like it some people don't i personally do like it but you made the joke of how you came to the creative decision to uh sing that way or have your vocals distorted in a certain way was inspired by yak back and then you show that it was actually recorded with a yak back that's the whole conceit of the gag but typically when you're doing anything comedic, you will reach out to us and ask people for insight and in how to how to execute. And I thought you went to Greg and got this joke, which Greg would have stolen from me and not given me credit for. So I confronted <laughs> you about it. I, I messaged you in your DMs and you had said no, that Ash had come up with this joke. Mm-hmm. Whoa. And somehow I don't believe it. I don't know. I, I don't believe it. <laughs> no, no. The, I'll, t- I'll tell you. I think the origins of it is I was making a TikTok uh, the other day about uh, Halloween costumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I wanted to the, – the TikTok uh, idea was if you need a last-minute Halloween costume, dress up as a pizza delivery person with all your friends. And you can go as competing p- pizza delivery guys. TikTok did pretty good. In uh, I needed something – Wait, did you – did you use mm-hmm. the photo from that year that the five of us did that? Yeah. yeah. Do you have not oh. seen the TikTok? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't send it use you. the platform. Did you ever invite me to participate in that fun event? We're not going to relitigate something happened uh, okay. four years ago. I'm a Don. I'm a bit yeah. of a Don. I'm a bit of a Don. Okay. <laughs> and um, so Ash was uh, clearing, uh, getting, I was like, I need something really silly to wear at the top of the TikTok to let people, the viewer know that this is a Halloween costume related TikTok. She goes into her room. She starts getting up lots of costume ideas, lots of like knickknacks. Ash is good at having lots of knickknacks around here. And she brings up the yak back and she's like, oh, you should do something with this yak back. That's kind of funny. Maybe where did do she something get a yak back from? What do you mean she she's brings up a, the yak back? You know, she's listening. Maybe she comes down here and uh, and says where she gets – Ash, you want to come down here and talk about where you got the, uh, the yak back from? Anyway, I probably got that part of the story wrong as well because uh, I don't remember anything. But uh, Ash is going to come down the stairs and clarify. Because no one has a functional yak back from the year 1991. Just that's fully working with a battery. All right. Ash is is going to – Ash is getting uh, on the mic. It's exciting. Ash, speak speak into that. Can you uh, listen on your headphones so you can hear them still? (laughs) 
Okay, talk. So where where did where did you get this yak back from, Ash? Um, I, I've truly just had it forever. I kept it, and Which the battery still I don't works. Like love, I've changed the battery. Okay, I changed it. I think um, kind of recently. I don't know why. I think when I got batteries for like a guitar tuner. I, they existed. So um, I knew they existed. And I was like, this could be a funny bit for TikTok one day. And and it worked. My question for you, Shane, is what is the... Okay, so I posted this... Wait a second. Uh, Ash is leaving? Shane didn't have any follow-up No, it's questions? fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. All right. Um, okay, so I posted it. Our mutual friend who grew up with you guys, uh, Jeff Sykes, DMs and goes, oh, this must have been Shane's bit or something. He was like, oh, <laughs> Shane loves it. Yeah, so he knows. I was like, oh, I didn't know Shane had any relationship with the Yak Back. What is your relationship with the Yak Back, Shane? Like, honestly, what First are you talking all, about? First of all, nice I don't acting know job this. here, Max. You full well know what's going on. <laughs> I, I've used it in, in my first short film called Cops. The whole crux of the film hung in uh, the balance with a Yak Back where a crime is solved only because someone was recording uh, the person <laughs> confessing to the crime on a yak back. And the joke is the audio quality is so terrible that it would never be admissible in court. And you know mm. that Max. <laughs> Max, here's my question. Do you really not find the yak back bit synonymous with Shane? And maybe, no, maybe, I, 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 no, maybe that's a function know. of Max not being around from that 2004 to like 2007 or eight stretch because i would have known you then this is this is old hat for you you know yeah but there was one night i got a really touching message from you max where it's like uh shane i me and dan hamilton went through all your old short films and i i just think you're amazing this was like eight years ago i know because i printed out the text and the screen grabbed and it's hanging up on my wall i can show it to you if you need and i believe i would have wrote something like that but i don't remember any of the short films or sending that message <laughs> Here's my question, uh, and this is a creative question. Uh, Shane, do you not think that it's possible that Ash independently came up with a yak back gag and that she ha- she's not familiar with your past work, that two people can come up with the same bit independently? I think this whole thing's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, l- last question, um, Shane. With uh, my, I'm getting a lot of compliments on my TikToks. People run into me, oh, I see you on TikTok all the time. You're doing a great job. I think you of you as a bit of a TikTok guru. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you see an Arkell's TikTok and you go, oh, this could have been better if you did this, this, and this. Um, what would you rate the TikTok game right now out of 10 for Arkell's? It's on the uptick. It's been better. You okay. must have uh, employed a new editor or something. No, it's just me. He's improving. I'm doing all of it. How many lies can we have in one episode? <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's it. That's all. That's our episode. We'll never get down to the uh, bottom of the Yak Pack mystery. Thank you so much to Brent Hodge for joining us. Check out his film, Farmer Bro. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's it. That's all. That's our episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Leave a comment. If you have a question, DM us, all that stuff. Uh, Have a nice night or day or whatever. Bye-bye.